Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Drink scholars, of which I consider you all, dear listeners, may be familiar with Winston Churchill's contribution to cocktail culture. The British wartime leader is famously said to have enjoyed his martinis exceedingly dry, opting only to glance at a bottle of vermouth while stirring gin over ice, and then toasting in the general direction of France or Italy. Like most drinks lore, we have no idea if this quirky tale is indeed true, and there seems to be some evidence to the contrary. However, there can be no debating his significant, if lesser spoken about, influence on today's drink. Three dots and a dash, for those not versed in archaic military communication techniques, is Morse code for V and short for V for victory, which became a popular phrase following Churchill's famous hand gesture after the end of the Second World War in Europe. History aside, for now at least, the three dots and a dash cocktail is probably not very well known outside of tiki circles, but today's guest argues that it should be. Because not only is it a great drink, which always helps, but it offers a robust template, including two pretty uncommon ingredients that also allows for a world of experimentation and creation. The guest in question is Anton Kinlock, the owner and spiritual advisor of Fuchsia Tiki Bar in New Pelts, New York. Like a lot of tiki lovers, Anton is both incredibly passionate about that particular style of cocktails, but also just wonderfully knowledgeable on all aspects of spirits and mixed drinks in general. You don't need me to tell you that, though, listener, because you'll find out for yourself right now as we fire up the Morse code receivers and head to the beaches, not to fight, but to sip on some fantastic tropical drinks. Oh, and that sound you can hear right now? That's not a 1990s text message you're receiving. It's the Morse code for Cocktail College, which is, of course, brought to you by the Vinepair Podcast Network. It's V for Victory here in the Cocktail College studio today. We're joined by Anton Kinlock. Anton, welcome for joining us. And I hope that reference that I have there at the beginning does make sense for this cocktail. I believe it might. Possibly you can shed more light on that one for us. But thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, the the V definitely stands for victory. Um, victory in Europe, VE Day. Mm-hmm. So that was that was actually, the cocktail itself came from Don the Beachcomber originally. And he was a serviceman himself, mm-hmm. like from 1942 to 1945 in the Air Force. So this cocktail was pretty much a culmination of his skills. And then the garnish is really what kind of makes it stand out so much. Mm-hmm. The three dots were three cherries. Mm-hmm. And in his case, originally it was a chunk of pineapple yeah. as the dash. Although now it's a little bit more open interpretation. Yeah, definitely something we'll get into there. And I should tie the direct link. Three dots and a dash is the name of the cocktail. And that is the Morse code there for for V, which in many cases up until a movie came out recently was more associated with victory than vendetta but who knows these days <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if anyone's done that riff but look this is as we'll soon find out this is a tiki cocktail but this is definitely one of those where i think some people will be coming to this episode knowing nothing about it perhaps even never having heard of it before and others will be like heard of it maybe never tried it so I'd love for us to start by, can you can you tell us what type of drink this is and where it kind of lands within the, the tiki and tropical sphere? I mean, in the tiki and tropical sphere, I'd definitely be more on the drier, a little bit more sour, um, also a little bit more spicy. So it goes pretty much with everything that Don the Beachcomber has stood for, which is a combination of juices, a combination of sweeteners, a combination of rums, because... What one rum can do? Well, three or four can. <laughs> the classic. Yeah. So I would say this this is almost as attributable to the zombie, except for I would almost say slightly more complex. And it's definitely one of those cocktails that doesn't get enough recognition on menus or really in the world for that matter. Mm-hmm. 
And and classically, Tiki, and, and, and just looking at this list of ingredients in front of me, a ton of ingredients in there. And ultimately, the challenge that always arises is like, how do you find balance? And, you know, how much should each ingredient be allowed to shine or which ingredient should shine more than others? So look forward to getting into that. But as you mentioned up top there, Dom the Beachcomber, you know, this is, a, you know, another classic there. I, the guy has so many to his name, but... Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of this drink? You know, it's funny, actually. Uh, there's not a ton of history, like, published about this particular cocktail. Like, Don Don basically kept a lot of his recipes hidden. Mm-hmm. And we have Beach Bumberry to thank for actually pulling these recipes out from bartenders that worked for, for, uh, for Don for many, many years. But as a result of him being so secretive with everything, we don't know whether this is the exact recipe, but we know that it's somewhat close. Um, the history itself was pretty much also very much shrouded, unlike that of the Mai Tai or the QB Cooler or other drinks that were so popular. This one is one that not a lot of people have really dug into. And unfortunately, like beyond what we know the inspiration was, which was uh, Churchill's V for Victory, that's pretty much where the story kind of tapers off. But I would say that this cocktail probably had some influence from the zombie itself right around the same time 1940s uh just because you see a ton of ingredients you see a ton of rums the format is very very much similar so i'd say that perhaps that's really where this came from the one ingredient that really stands out though is the allspice that's that's one thing that you don't see in a ton of tiki cocktails or in a lot of cocktails for that matter so i would say that's that's the one unique piece of this cocktail and one unique piece of history where we start to see that particular ingredient start to shine more mm-hmm. in, in other drinks. And you mentioned there, you know, close ties to the zombie or, you know, uh, shared similarities here. Why do you think, just purely hypothetical, why do you think the zombie has done a better job of, I want to say breaking into the mainstream, I would say relative mainstream when it comes to, you know, cocktails and people drinking, right? But is it that, that I don't know, that evocative name? Or I think we spoke about with Shannon actually on the show about the zombie. We were talking about like this marketing around the two drink maximum, you know, like those kind of things build to the myth of a drink. Do you think it's that or do you think there's any other reason there? No, I think, I think yeah, a lot of people saw that drink as nefarious. And that two drink limit definitely kind of got people excited and thinking, oh my God, like this must be really potent. Yeah. So naturally people are are curious about that. But then something like the three dots and a dash, as I said, is kind of overlooked because it doesn't look as potent on paper. But once you get it in front of you, that's a whole nother story. And I'm we've been tempted ourselves at our bar to even put a limit on that one. However, we've not really put it on the menu because there's so many other great cocktails that we have. And then this is just kind of a classic that we can hammer out at any time. Mm-hmm. And and that's something I wanted to ask you too. I mean, we'll get into the reason why you want to cover this drink yourself here, beyond the fact that you run a tiki bar, which of course is a, is a natural tie in there. And this isn't some a question I ask everyone when who, that comes into the studio that, you know, works in your industry. But I do find it fascinating when we're talking about tiki and tropical drinks and there seems to be something that kind of captures people's imaginations more about this style of cocktails than maybe others. And it's not for everyone, but yeah, what what was it about, I don't know, like tiki and that, that really fascinates you? I mean, for me, it's almost not that there's no rules per se, but when we go back to the early 2000s and we saw the cocktail renaissance and we started people really digging deep into the older recipes, Tiki was kind of overlooked by a lot of people. And for me, it's been an absolutely fascinating category because it breaks all of those traditional rules that we've come to learn and appreciate. It's like more is more. While modern cocktails we see more often than not are kind of more restrained. Yep. And I've always had a thing about coming out and doing something a little bit different and really pushing pushing the boundaries and throwing some shock value at there. Mm-hmm. And Tiki was kind of the perfect vehicle for that. Mm-hmm. And I think this cocktail is pretty much the perfect vehicle for that because it's got so many incredible flavors kind of all working together in harmony. And Tiki is very much the same way. It's not just a combination of juices. It's actually about bringing balance and really doing so much 
and pushing the boundaries and creating something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the, these might, this is a question perhaps that might appeal more to folks that are like in the industry that listen to this show, but I imagine there maybe being like pros and cons of like running a tiki bar, right? On the one hand, like you have a captive audience, right? People that come to tiki bars, you can expect like tiki drinks, but then does that maybe alienate yourselves to others who maybe perhaps have this vision of what that category is and they don't realize like uh, the history and just sort of some of the incredible skills required to make these and the knowledge, the additional knowledge needed. And also like, do you ever get instances where people come in and are like, can you make me like a martini? Because, you know, obviously you're, you're a bar professional, you know, you have all of these other drinks covered too, but like, just curious what that experience is like for you. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of fun, especially in, in my particular position, we do a fair amount of education with guests so we actually will spend the time to have a dialogue and find out what their flavor profiles are, what their uh, spirit preferences are, and try to steer them in the direction of something that's on our menu that might be cohesive with what they like. Similarly, if I get somebody who comes in, oh, I don't like tiki drinks, I don't like rum, well, that's okay. Let's let's find something that you do like. It doesn't necessarily have to be a sugarcane spirit. It could be a bourbon. It could be another whiskey. It could be a gin. And we'll put it into a tiki application. Mm-hmm. And we might create something for you that's unique and just kind of expose you to something something different. But ultimately, like, we still take as much pride and care into the balance of every cocktail as any other spirits person would. Mm-hmm. And and to your point, too, right, like the, the easiest form of education is putting one of these drinks on the menu so that it prompts guests to ask you, oh, what is a three dots and a dash? And baby, by the way, also, like, if you're running a, a speakeasy style, dimly lit bar in Manhattan, and it's you know known for classic cocktails, chances are you probably don't have the opportunity to put something like that on the menu. Precisely, precisely. So knowing the time and place, um, could you necessarily get a mai tai or three dots and a dash at a speakeasy? Possibly, but I mean, you obviously have to look at the venue and what they offer and what they specialize in, and kind of it's all attributable. So yeah. with us, tiki and spirit and uh, tropical serves have always been our thing, but that doesn't mean that we'll shy away from the classics. Yeah. And there are some rare occasions as well where we have had a kind of blending of those two. I think of a mutual friend of ours here, Brian Miller, during his time at Death & Co. And a drink he had, the Winchester, for example, you know, like that making it on the menu. Now, maybe that doesn't make it onto the menu if Brian isn't working there at that time or whatever, but, you know. We have had some kind of modern tiki classics pop up in those bars. Um, but we're looking exclusively today. Three dots and a dash. And, you know, we've spoken about this style of the drink. Let's just let's just get into it here and look at these ingredients because there's a long list. And something that's very interesting, too, is that a few of these will have been the first we've covered. Um, we're going to look at rum first, though, we, you know, as is generally the case when it comes to tiki. Am I right in thinking the main component or the, the, the main proportion of rum in this drink is going to be cane-based or maybe even should exclusively be a Martinique agricole rum? Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, no. During during the time, actually, like uh, Grand Arome-style uh, Martinique rum, which is a bit more flavorful, or in this case, what we have available to most people is the classic Martinique fresh cane juice rum. Mm-hmm. It's it's wonderful. It's light. It's grassy. It really does cut through a lot of those more potent ingredients. And I think it's almost essential to have that as the main component, but it shouldn't be the only component. I mean, what I love about this cocktail is that you can really Mr. Potato Head the rums to do not just a Martinique or a Guadeloupe uh, fresh cane juice rum. If you want to get Wacky and weird, you could do a cachaça. Mm. Um, you could o- always break it up a little bit differently, maybe do an aged agricole. So there's there's definitely some some ways to finesse it. But mm. at the end of the day, yes, I would say a uh, fresh cane juice rum is almost absolutely necessary when yeah. doing this drink. And if, you know, we you've spoken there about, you know, some might officially be an agricole, some won't, and we don't really need to get into appellations and laws and things like that now. But I was wondering if you can maybe provide some more pointers when it comes to... Um, you know, profile of the rum, you talk about grassy, they're generally all going to be like that. Or maybe kind of 
ABV? Like, what what are you thinking about if if someone's going out and being like, well, not looking for a specific brand, but what are some of the things you're considering from this rum when you're using it as the anchor for this drink? If you're going to be using this particular style rum, either exclusively or as a part, you definitely want to do something that's 50% ABV or higher. You definitely want it to come in strong and punchy. And again, as I mentioned before, having it kind of stand up and not be bullied around by some of the other potent ingredients is really key in this whole equation. Yeah. And I guess it goes without saying, too, if this is for a bar, you want it to also hopefully have some use in another one of your cocktails too, or be a versatile player, right? You could, Maybe not a good idea to have a specific brand exclusively dialed in for this drink, but maybe it doesn't work for any other drinks you have on the menu. Yeah, no, you could you could definitely use either what we do at our bar, actually. We use uh, Rum J and Blanc. Nice. Um, comes in right at 50% ABV. And that's actually our quintessential rum that we use in a lot of our and a lot of our serves actually, like it's also used in the Mai Tai. So there is crossover there. And that's kind of the nice thing about this rum is that it is versatile in other applications. So whether you're using a little bit or a lot, it's going to be used up one way. Nice. And final thought I had here on this particular style of rum too. I think this cane juice-based rum, as well as I'd say mezcal too, those are two unaged spirits that I generally really enjoy just drinking neat. And I think they're probably two of the best spirits to drink neat, right? You could argue maybe tequila or adjacent stuff, but yeah, how do you feel about that as well? Just like this, yeah, this notion that maybe a lot of people think you don't sip unaged spirits. No, you totally can sip unaged spirits. I think that's that's another kind of aspect that a lot of people overlook. There's this stigma that only brown spirits, only aged spirits should be enjoyed neat or over over one big cube. And that's not the case. You can enjoy whatever you want. Um, but I think that having it in its raw form in an unaged application, neat or over one big rock, you get so much more out of that spirit. You're not getting now bothered down by the barrel. You're actually enjoying all the terroir of that particular spirit. Um, with fresh cane juice especially, that is pressed down it is fermented fairly quickly, and it's a relatively short fermentation time. So whatever is going on around that cane varietal is going to be in your glass. So that's why it's so important to not only enjoy your spirits neat, but also enjoy them in cocktails like this where it's really going to shine through. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, they do a phenomenal job of holding their own there. Um, and sometimes people flip that on its head and be like, you know, I don't want to use an expensive aged whatever, whether it's whiskey or rum or whatever in a cocktail, because I'm I'm going to lose the nuance. Well, he, here we have this whole category of spirits that said I can do both. And I think that should be celebrated. But there is typically, I believe, an aged component to this drink as well. There is. There is. Um, tell us about that, please. So the other component is our uh, blended aged rum. Now, this is where things can really go many different directions. You could either do what we like to do is actually split that base up even smaller. We'll do actually a Guiana-based uh, heavy molasses-style rum along with a very pungent Jamaican rum. So we'll pretty much use a trifecta of rums per se for this particular cocktail just because we like to elevate the nuance. But if you have just, say, a Barbados rum like a Mount Gay Totally, totally acceptable. It's got great flavor. It's going to also highlight some of the nice characteristics of this cocktail. And again, it's not going to dominate over the uh, rum agricole. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm interested to hear that you use something, yeah, there'll be a funky Jamaican component to this drink too. So even though we're getting that from the cane based, this is something as well you feel like it, it's not going to overpower there. As you said, it can they can work kind of in in unison. Yeah. Yeah. No, you have a nice contrast. You have this nice, bright, grassy vegetal component, and you have this kind of underlying hogo um, without getting too deep into, into yeah. Jamaican rum. You have this nice kind of like very aromatic component as well. And then last but not least, you have this, for us, this nice creamy caramel flavoring in the very backbone, which is the Guiana rum. Mm-hmm. Very nice there. And yeah, interesting to highlight too that like while we do talk about this idea of funk, it's it's coming it's coming from a different place in Jamaican rum that it isn't cane based. And they can they can seem similar, but they're also maybe two different um profiles 
Completely. Very, yeah, very minor differences in the grand scheme of things. But um, I don't know. I just see them as all these like different blending components that you think about when you're making cocktails, but also master blenders think when they're pulling together spirits. Do you use that same blend of aged rum? Is that kind of a, a standard for your bar there? Or is that for this particular drink? Or do you pull together that blend and you're like, this is our aged blend component? Yeah, no, actually, that's exactly what we do. It's our aged component. So we pretty much use that as the quintessential three dots of the dash mix. That is our Mai Tai mix. Um, we've pretty much found the perfect vehicle for a lot of classic applications. And it really uh, streamlines things for us because now my my staff are not pulling three separate bottles individually. They're just pulling one. One, yeah. Um, and there's that really nice level of consistency as a result because now you're not over pouring one of or another. It, that's it. It's just a standardized pour. And I guess again, I guess another thing to consider when we talk about like, yeah, why does the the, the kind of tiki bar exist? And I would imagine one of the main reasons there, right, that this kind of exists is this single style of drinks, single, I'm saying in air quotes here because it's very wild, but you know what I mean, um, in focusing on that alone in one type of bar, because again, if I run a classic cocktail program, but I want to have two or three of these different drinks on my menu, suddenly I probably have way too many bottles of rum. Not that you would ever say that there's such a thing, but right, like it, maybe it's just very difficult to do that in a kind of like all-rounder cocktail bar. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, for other other applications, other bars, I can definitely understand not wanting to take on additional inventory. And that's kind of where some of these merchant bottlings really come in very, very handy. And I think this is something that is also applicable to the three dots and a dash. Um, Denizen, for example, makes a phenomenal product that is aged for eight years, and it's actually a blend of Grand Arome rums. And it could basically be a wonderful single-bottle pour for this cocktail. And you could do the same thing with a Mai Tai. But again, like that's kind of the nice thing for bar programs as well. Like, hey, you don't want to carry a ton of inventory? Just grab this product. It fits all of boxes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if that's not your focus. But then if it is your focus, you know, you're, you're allowed to be able to say, well, you know what? Actually, we want our blended age component we want it to be this, and we we you know we like this profile. Um, next component here that I'm looking at, and I'm pretty sure this is the first one, first time we've we've covered this is Velvet Falernum. Ah, uh, yes. Apologies to everyone listening if it's not. It's definitely not one that comes up every episode for sure. What can you tell us about what that is, for example, and what you're looking for from that ingredient, but also what it brings to the drink? So John Taylor Falernum actually is a. Barbadian product. It is made actually with a rum distillate, and then it is hit with lime zest, ginger, clove, even a little bit of almond. Um, this particular brand actually has been made by by John Taylor for many, many years, and for a while it was basically not able to be found, especially in the late 90s and early 2000s. It only started getting into this country only within the last two decades roughly. Nice. Um, so it's super exciting to see because this particular brand brings a really nice kind of ginger and clove and lime backbone as well as a little bit of residual sweetness in the uh, in the particular ABV. Mm-hmm. And it is used in, it can be used in a lot of tiki cocktails and I think it's, again, one of those ingredients that people overlook in their programs because you can use it as a sugar substitute instead of using, say, simple syrup or demerara pull the John John Taylor Falernum. It adds a little bit of ABV, but it adds this really nice mouthfeel to a cocktail. Mm-hmm. What kind of ABV are we talking there, roughly? I always like to hit people with this one. <laughs> you, you would think I would know this by now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's yeah, 11%. 11%. So really, yeah, in the grander scheme of things as, a, as an ingredient, not, not something that's going to impact the final ABV of the cocktail too much. Um is this a category of one, i.e. like Velvet Falernum equals John D. Taylor, or is that just the most prominent, or is that just one that you particularly like to highlight? That is the that is the most prominent one that most bartenders know. However, there is another company out in Pittsburgh, uh, Maggie's Farm, who produce their own. They do a coffee liqueur, they do a Falernum, they do several kinds of rums. But their particular Falernum is actually a higher ABV. I believe it's 20 or 22%. Mm. And it is actually more lime forward and more clove forward than this. Uh, So it has a different application for our bar. So we carry both products and we use them in different applications. 
but it's nice to kind of put them down side by side and try them both. And and whenever guests say, oh, what's, what is Falernum? Or they'll pronounce it wrong. That's fine. Yeah. Hey, tell you what, it's easier if you try it instead yeah. of me sitting here and explaining it to you. <laughs> and that first sip, people's eyes just light up like, oh my God, what is this? This is delicious. Nice. Yeah. Do you wait to be the worst tiki guest ever in the world if you want to start going to your bar and just being like, yeah, so what's your Velvet Falernum program look like? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you want to start a bar that prides themselves on that. I don't know. I, I do like getting granular, though. Uh, and going back to Maggie's Farm No More, I don't know. Maybe Bob Dylan wants to reconsider that one because that sounds like a wonderful product there. Uh, this one's definitely a first for us, though. Old Spice Dram. You mentioned it up top. That's perhaps maybe one of the calling cards of this drink, you know, where it sets itself apart, differentiates itself. But again, tell us what Old Spice Dram is as an ingredient and how it fits into this drink. Yeah, so that is, again, another uh, another essentially neutral grain distillate that is steeped with allspice berries, um, prominent in Jamaica and very prominent in a lot of tiki applications. But it is, for us, we started, we started off actually with the St. Elizabeth's, which is through, um, I'm already forgetting which the distributors, House Pens. Yes. Yeah, so House Pens got us that very early on, and it's been a very, very fun flavor because it's a little bit black peppery, and then also kind of like you get toasted nutmeg. So it's kind of very hard to explain flavor to people until you actually do pour it out, but it is very pungent. Mm-hmm. You don't often use more than about a quarter ounce um, I think I have seen maybe a heavy quarter, but that's pretty much it. But a little does go a very, very long way. It's kind of like I consider it to be the salt and pepper of a cocktail. And and it sounds like, you know, when we're just speaking about those two components, those two, you know, ingredients side by side in a way, it sounds like Velvet Falernum's maybe aiming toward that kind of brighter side of some of the components here, right, with Lime, you talk about maybe a ginger, things that maybe, you know, really are, are lighter than perhaps the heavy spices of that you mentioned for the Old Spice Dram. Mm-hmm. There. And just those two working, again, in harmony and just, yeah, tiki going extra. I love it. Yeah, yeah, it's all about contrast. And mm-hmm. that's, yeah, and Falernum and Allspice, really, those are like two, two sides of a, of a coin. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun to put them together in a cocktail because then you have like different points on your tongue when you're sipping it that you're getting all these flavors popping out at you. Mm-hmm. When you're composing original drinks for your bar, are you ever, how often does it come up where you're like, you know, what would completely round this out or just add the finishing touch, whether it's an Old Spice or Falernum? Like, how often does that come up or how front of mind is it for you as an ingredient? Because kind of like other ones, I don't know, maybe Orgette's another great example if you're thinking about Mai Tai of just like, that is uh, a tool that you have in your arsenal as a tiki bartender. But. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we use allspice and we use falernum basically like we use our bitters. It is kind of like a finishing component. It is something that we pretty much will use as the last minute. We'll do a ton of R&D. We'll try different specs for a cocktail. And then at the very last moment, hey, you know, this needs X. And sometimes it'll be a little bit of falernum, like either a teaspoon or maybe a quarter ounce might go a long way and just kind of like, round out the whole thing, or, hey, we need something a little bit spicy to help ground this down. Hey, that's where the allspice comes in. Mm -hmm. So different applications naturally, but it's fun to kind of keep that in the back of our mind of like, all right, well, what else can we do? Let's drive it off a cliff. Yeah. (laughs) Less has never been more in this style of drink, right? Precisely. But it, it, so... It sounds like what you're saying there, too, if my understanding is correct. These are things that you can introduce to a cocktail when you think it's almost there, right? Like, they don't need to be in the equation from the moment you have this new concept that you're trying to build this drink, right? Like, you can bring them in later to finish. Absolutely. And and we like to compare them side by side, sometimes with uh, Flarenum, sometimes with Allspice, sometimes with both, sometimes with neither. And we just blind taste the staff and we kind of all talk it through and figure out, like, does this have the right components? Does it have the right balance of flavors? Is this cocktail evolving over time? Is it getting better or is it getting more watered down? Fantastic. And generally speaking, when we're looking at this type of drink as well, there's going to be a sweetening component and a fresh juice component too, because again, we don't want to just leave things there and say, that's it, done. They're going to help provide balance, but also let's just bring some more stuff to the party. 
Uh, let's look at that sweetening ingredient first. What does that typically or classically look like for this drink? And what's your approach to it yourself? So the sweetening component would be honey. And most bars have a honey syrup. For us, we actually use wildflower honey. We like those nice aromatic components to really come through. And the way we do ours actually is a essentially a rich honey syrup. So it's a two-to-one. And that really does give and build on top of the texture of the falernum because you've already got some of the residual sugar in that, but now you're just kind of bumping that up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it really does help kind of grind things down a little bit and kind of smooth out those edges. And when it comes to using it as a honey syrup rather than pure honey, that's is that pure ease of use when it comes to this is going to release into your jigger easier and come out of the jigger too? You're not going to have too much residual left in there. Is that what we're thinking there? Very much so. Very much so. I mean, I've also tinkered around with different ratios, like a one-to-one honey syrup has always come out to me a little thin. Yeah. Um, and you kind of lose some of that nuance, but a rich syrup definitely takes a little bit longer to come out of the jigger, but it's still loose enough where it's not going to cake onto the ice when you're shaking it. It's, it's going to blend and it's going to incorporate very, very nicely and easily. Yeah, it still allows you to have that consistency right there. Mm -hmm. What about juices then as we move on to the next part of the drink? Always fresh. Always fresh. What what is, again, what are we calling for classically in this drink and what's your your approach? So classically, it's going to be orange juice and then you're going to get lime juice. Those are our two citrus components. We juice all of our juices daily. Um, Fresh orange juice, like, is going to taste so much better than something that's store-bought, or worse yet, something that you left from the night before. It oxidizes so quickly, it's so fragile. So in this particular cocktail, fresh orange juice really is going to come through very, very strong. And naturally, the same with lime juice. It oxidizes within a couple of hours, so using it at its peak is really best because these two components are going to help brighten up everything and Mm -hmm. really cut through some of those heavier flavors, especially that allspice. Even though it's a small component— like I said, a little goes a long way. So this is where your lime and your orange are really going to help kind of make this whole cocktail pop and feel more cohesive. Mm-hmm. And of course, we, we we talk regularly about lime juice or lemon being a way to incorporate acidity, which is one of the main factors we want to consider when we're trying to balance a drink. Of course, orange juice is going to bring acidity too, but on a lesser scale. So where do you feel like that falls into this? Like, why is that a vital component of this and not one that we can maybe skip or overlook? Like, I think orange juice also, like, when we juice ours, we also do have some of the orange oils go through into the fresh juice. So you're getting that extra level of complexity. Now, I know some bartenders like to even acidify their orange juice and kind of skip out on the lemon or the lime component, but I feel like that kind of detracts. And if we're going to be classic. I'm pretty certain that Don the Beachcomber did not use powdered acids to <laughs> mess with his juices. Oh, I'd love I'd love for him to have those things available though and to consider it to to see his reaction to the concept, but yeah, it's very true. Yeah, so you're working with with what you have back then and I think it's absolutely incredible like how this cocktail is is so complex and like I mentioned earlier, Beachbum Berry has really done an amazing job recreating these recipes to the best of his understanding and and basically saving them from being lost to time after Don died back in 1989. So, and that man held on to all these recipes for so long. So for us to have something like this that is this complex, it kind of borders on insanity. Yeah, it really does there. Incredible to just also hypothesize whether how close, you know, these these modern versions get. But again, this is something that comes up so often too, like even if we land upon the correct recipes, all of the other ingredients have changed so much as well, right? Like that we, we're maybe like trying to work towards um, just the philosophy of what a drink was or what something, what the drink was trying to achieve, I guess. Yeah. Final ingredient for this drink I have down here, you know, beyond garnish as Angostura bitters. Would that be correct? And what's your thinking there? Yeah, Angostura bitters. Um, you see that fairly often in tiki cocktails. It is kind of the last dash, the last component, that last little like finishing salt on a dish. And I'm a big proponent of using bitters. Um, More is definitely not more in this case because allspice is really your predominant flavor profile. But the nice notes of the cinnamon and the black pepper that you get from Angostura bitters definitely do help kind of also 
finish this whole cocktail up on a very positive, very kind of like spice forward note. Mm-hmm. I always it always fascinates me as well that a lot of these ingredients, especially that we've spoken about today, you know, the old spice in this and the spiced. Maybe it's just culturally, but we've always or oftentimes kind of associate them more with colder months, whereas, you know, tropical drinks culture completely throws that off in its head, where it's like, no, we're using these specifically for escapism and and uh, warm weather drinking, whether that is the case or not. (laughs) Yeah, no, I would agree. I think that's kind of the fun part of, of this whole category of cocktails is that we are taking ingredients that are not normally seen in a summer application and putting it on its head for good reason, because we should be challenging the norms. And given everything that had gone on during Don the Beachcomber's time between the pan, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, all of these things weighed down on the people and weighed down on the soldiers. So it, naturally, it's people had a fascination with escapism. They wanted to forget what was going on in their regular lives, and this was kind of the perfect vehicle for it. And I think this cocktail really encompasses all of that. It's such a great example. And, you know, to to look at that name again there, three dots and a dash, uh, I'm assuming this didn't drive the drink when it came to creation, but it's referenced specifically in the classic garnish, as you mentioned up top. So do you want to cover that again? And you said that maybe this is how it was done traditionally, but now that may be not the case. Yeah, as far as we know, Don was using fresh juices and he was not a wasteful man by any means. So he made sure to utilize as much as possible. And fresh pineapple was very much a garnish in his wheelhouse. So from what we know historically was that it was a chunk of fresh pineapple as the dash. And then the three dots were referenced by three maraschino cherries. Mm -hmm. And these days, is that what you would go with yourself? Are you looking maybe to something different? The only way we change it a little bit differently is we actually mirror what they do over at Smuggler's Cove, which is using a pineapple frond. And that's only because we basically don't hold on to our pineapples long enough. Everything is juiced fresh. So we actually keep them. We dehydrate them. We keep the leaves. So this way, pretty much no part of the plant goes to waste. Mm -hmm. And and that fresh juice, I'm I'm sure, is going into drinks like the Jungle Bird or, you know, other classics. Blue Hawaii we had recently. Blue Hawaii is a good one. Yeah. So makes real sense. And also, there's nothing as sad as like a wedge of pineapple that's been sat out for a couple of hours or whatnot, just thinking about hotel breakfast buffets right now, to be honest with you, you know, those things don't go, those things kind of start to look old quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And for us, like we wanted to take a very similar approach to what Don was doing for so many years, which is trying to figure out how to save money and utilize as much as possible um, because he had grown up during that time. So he understood the importance of saving up everything so he could open his first tiki bar. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we're doing as well. We're dehydrating our garnishes. We're trying to utilize everything we possibly can. We're trying to get creative with our blends of rums so that way we can not only save some money, but also create something unique and special. Fantastic. All right, then. How about you talk us through the preparation of this drink now as if you were making it for us in the bar uh, and also just with you know, units or measurements there, you know, quantities for us. Uh, feel free to reference any notes you have. You know, it's it's, it's a big list. I'm, I'm sure you probably have your spec down, but no one's going to look down on you here in this studio if you're, if, you're checking out, <laughs> if you're checking out the spec and the build for that one. Yeah, I mean, the way the way I've always taught my, my staff, actually, is we start off with the smallest ingredients first. So we'll start off with a couple of dashes of bitters into the jigger or into the tin, and then thereafter it'll be half ounce, or sorry, quarter ounce of allspice, half ounce of uh, flirtum. In our case, we'll kind of do a 50-50 of John Taylor and Maggie's Farm. We just like the way they play together. Then I actually do three-quarter lime, a full ounce of orange juice. And then we're going actually into a trifecta of rums. So we're doing a half ounce of Guiana rum, specifically Hamilton, 86, then we'll do a Jamaican rum. Generally, it's going to be something like Appleton, and that's probably going to be the signature or the eight-year, something in that category. And then a full one-and-a-half ounce of rum jam blanc. Mm-hmm. And sorry, is that a, a 50-50 split of the half ounce of the aged rums there or half ounce each? Half ounce each. Half ounce each. Okay, so you're, you're, yeah, you're 
two and a half ounces total base spirit there. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so it's a, a it's, it's a yeah, it's a little little heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, and thereafter, we just shake that with some pebble ice and then dump it right in, as we call dirty dump, into a tall pilsner. Garnish it with your pineapple frond, your three cherries, nice straw, and sip away and enjoy. Good to go. Any preference for yourself? This is this is one that we haven't spoken about for a while. I do always enjoy. Any preference when it comes to shaker tins, style? Or do, you, do you lean Boston or otherwise, you know, for yourself? Just I was just thinking there, you probably shake a, a lot of drink, maybe more than at other bars. So uh, keen to hear any tips you have there or preferences. Yeah, my personal preference has always been tin on tin. Um, those are just way easier. The Caricos have always been a fan favorite of mine. Anything that is weighted. And anytime I get a new tin, I just bend it and roll it around on the table just to kind of get it a little bit more malleable. And we keep usually about six on our bar at any given time just because of the volume of cocktails that we're doing. But those are pretty much for for me and my team, those are kind of the easiest. You don't really see a ton of people working with glass that much anymore because it's just so prone to breaking. And I'm sure we've all, anybody listening to this, has cut themselves at least once on one of those, and it's just a mess. Ooh, yeah, that's a rough one. So 10 on 10 there, that's a good style. Um, Fantastic. Well, before we move into the final section of the show, I wanted to hear if you have any final thoughts for us today on this drink. Three dots and a dash. I honestly think that people should be really trying to make this or ordering it at more bars, Mm -hmm. because if you have the ingredients available to you, it is a game changer, and I think the use of flarinum and allspice is so underrated, and it should really be seen in more cocktail programs, not just in tiki applications, but any program should be happy to have those two ingredients in their arsenal because they're so versatile and they bring so much unique flavor to a cocktail. Mm-hmm. And the answer might be obvious to us here because we've kind of covered it, but purely when it comes down to recommending this drink, if someone says they like X cocktail this is the one you're going to recommend. What would that cocktail be? Would it be the zombie? It would be the zombie. I would say this is kind of like a a very close cousin to the zombie, uh, nearly as potent. And I think in in many cases, even a little bit more complex. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to take it back one more from there, what's the drink someone's having that's leading you to recommend them a zombie or perhaps this, you know, just skipping one step of the way there? I mean, I've had people who have asked me for uh, something very complex. Um, They'll, they'll ask me for a Long Island iced tea, and they want it dressed up a little bit. But for the for the for the average drinker, I usually say, "Do you like something refreshing and 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 spirit forward at the same time?" And that usually catches them off guard because it's either people who drink Manhattan's and old fashions, and they're looking for something more spirit forward. And then you get people who are more into daiquiris and cosmos and the sour style cocktails. And I'm like, this is kind of a hybrid of the two. Mm-hmm. And I think it it's great because it reads very very well with. Either side of the either side of the room. I, I'm, you know what? I find myself often in that camp in the middle there. So I'm so glad that you say that. You know, where I want something refreshing but boozy. You know, heavy on the spirits, but also, yeah, again, like maybe that I want to be sipping in warmer weather if I'm outside. You know, which just the martini doesn't quite. It's maybe the one, the one scenario for me where I'm like questioning whether I will pull the trigger on a martini there. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, now we get to learn more about yourself as a drinker and a bartender as we head into our final section of the show here. How do you feel it? Ready for the quick hit questions? Oh boy, let's do it. Let's do it, Anton. All right, starting with question number one. What style or category, I'm laughing, you probably know why, of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? That would be rum. That would be rum. Any type of rum in particular that you're... Okay, Touching wood here because we don't want this to happen, but say there's there's a fire at a property and you're only able to save a couple of bottles. Which which style of rum are you going to first? Forget money. Money's no object or whatever. But which are the ones purely that you're running to where you're like, I have to have one more drink of this before it goes? Oh, that would definitely be the a- anything from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Anything anything high proof, anything high ester from Jamaica. That's That's my soft spot. Nice. Question number two here for you. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Oh, that is that is a great question. And I know other people have said strainers and such. Um, I'm just going to go out and say the Hamilton Beach Stick Blenders. I think that is probably one of the greatest tools to have. 
Um, even if you're not doing frozen cocktails, it's got its own unique applications. More specifically, if you've got an egg white cocktail, great thing to use. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to kill your arm doing a Ramos gin fizz. You're not going to kill your arm. Like that is, it's kind of a hack that I learned years ago. And it's one that I promised I would put in every single bar that I ever open. We just have to have it. <laughs> Very nice there. Iconic, iconic tool there. But like you said, maybe it has more uses than people realize. Mm-hmm. Question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? That would be the best advice, actually, I got was from our mutual friend, Brian Miller, which is take the ego off of the menu, which really resonated with me because I realized that when we as spirits professionals are making drinks, we're not just making drinks for ourselves, we're making drinks for other people. And at the end of the day, the drinks are really a very small component of a much bigger experience and the way we conduct ourselves are really is really what's going to drive their memory of us and their memory of the evening and how the night turned out and I think that's really important for a lot of younger bartenders to realize is that it's not about you it's about the guests it's about how we make them feel mm-hmm. they're not going to remember you but they're going to remember how they felt yeah and and what's i mean i think you done a great job there of speaking about exactly what that concept looks like or but I'm wondering what an application might be for that when it comes to like maybe the menu specifically. Is that like not trying to go overly complex and be, you know, go down a direction that maybe people don't feel comfortable ordering or people don't feel familiar with? Like, or not, I'm not asking you to call anyone out here, of course, but what does ego look like for you if it, if you see it on a menu? Like, what's something that you might, so that you can, so we can highlight that here? Like, what might that look like? I mean, for me, it's kind of like, Pretension is generally compounded by super complex drinks and staff who basically will not acknowledge or worse yet on the menu if you have all these crazy ingredients, but you don't have a flavor profile underneath them because your guests might not be familiar with 70% of the menu. But if you have a flavor profile underneath that kind of describes what they can expect, that's really going to help bring down the ego and, and really kind of get them down to your level and you're going to be able to have a dialogue with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. There's 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 a sweet spot, right? And I think it's probably different for every bar, but there's a sweet spot when it comes to information on the menu. Like there can be an overload and therefore people who are not in the industry just become confused, understandably so. But then there can maybe be like not enough info where even if you walk into a bar, you're like, I'm not sure what's going on with this drink. And also like, I can see how it would work if it's stirred, but what if it's shaken or, you know, like, how are they serving it? I don't know. Sometimes I feel like we could all do a better job of highlighting those things or a lot of places could. Yeah. Adjectives are incredibly important. And, and you know, what's funny is that, like, we have, we have the tools in our lexicons to describe things, but we are terrible at actually describing what we like. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. I, I, just to that point earlier where you're like, how do you recommend drinks to people? It's so funny where, like... Whenever you're asked that question, oh, what do you like? It's like you've never had a cocktail before. You're like, well, what am I saying here? You know, if if you're not using the actual cocktail as an example, I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, our approach has actually been even to go beyond that and say, well, what kind of food do you like? Um, what kind of what kind of cuisine, or better yet, what kind of flavors? Because it helps us kind of gear in our guests into what is going to be appropriate for them. Mm-hmm. No, and I think also there's a way where this can start to become tacky too, but I some wine bars here in the city have started doing things as well where they ask you completely different questions, but like to hopefully land in a place where you get the drink you want because like that's the over, you know, that's the goal, but in questions that you feel comfortable with as well, right? Like Absolutely. I don't know. There's There's a balance to everything, right? All right, question number four here for you. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Uh, I mean, if it was if it was still around, I would probably go to the Polynesian and have have a drink, have the double barrel Winchester served to me by Brian. Mm-hmm. That would be <laughs> that. I, I had that drink only once when I was when I was there a couple of times, and it blew my mind. Yeah, and I tried to recreate it at home. I found the recipe, and I couldn't get it. I just could not get it, even though I had the same exact ingredients. And that's really what what Tiki is all about, is that you can come close, just like we have with Don's recipes. We can come close to what the intention was, 
but it's not going to be quite the same because you are not in that particular environment. You're not being served by that particular bartender. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal drink there. One that definitely deserves a lot more recognition. I don't know what's, what season of this show we'll need to be in until we get there. <laughs> not, you know, like, uh, definitely want to have Brian on back sometime soon, though. So maybe, maybe that's the next one. Final question for today's episode. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Oddly enough, I would go for a last word. Just because last cocktail... My final breaths, I think it's only fitting. Nice to have the last word there. <laughs> Always good. Um, and such a great template too. We've, we've spoken about it on that episode, but real good template for a drinker. Interesting template that works surprisingly well for, I mean, you know, all right, we're competing against Tiki here where we're talking about six to eight ingredients in one drink, but four components equal proportions. It's it's one of those ones to me that's kind of like a miracle that it works in so many different ways. Absolutely. And I think that's something that more bartenders should look to as a template. Um, because again, like you could take the three dots and use that as a template in swapping out different rums, swapping out different base ingredients. I mean, maybe you want to make this cocktail with a cognac and armagnac. Why not? Um, yeah. And yeah, this is kind of what our whole industry is about is finding these cocktails, using them as a template and kind of using them as a vehicle to create new iterations that are hopefully going to become iconic and talked about in future years. Very nice. Very nice. Well, then, Anton, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be in the studio with you here. Thanks for making the trip uh, and appearing with us on Cocktail College. Thank you. Hope to have you back soon. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.